Welcome to the Wet Podcast, episode number 24. Today, my guest is Scott Rank of the Scholarpreneur website. Uh, we have a really interesting discussion about academics, adjuncts, teachers, things like that, uh, doing things to kind of broaden their appeal, broaden their audience, and um, and make money outside of academia. And uh, it's a great it's a great discussion. And in fact, this discussion brings together a couple of the things that this podcast has been about since the beginning. He talks about self-publishing, which um, I talk about a lot on this podcast. Uh, he talks about adjuncts and adjunct labor and the state of um, education today, which I talk about a lot on this podcast and uh, kind of brings the two together in a really nice way. It's uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Uh, before we get into it though, I have a few, uh, I guess, pieces of business. Um, you are listening to The Wet Podcast. It's writing, education, and technology. You can find the website at ericmarshall.net slash wet. That's Eric with a K, Marshall with two L's, dot net. Um, there you will find show notes, uh, all the links that we mention, and uh, any other information you need should be on the show notes there. So go to ericmarshall.net slash wet and then uh, look for episode number 24. Uh, in the, I guess in the spirit of entrepreneurialism, I don't know, I've decided to start a Patreon campaign. For those who are not familiar with it, Patreon is this really interesting site that lets people basically become patrons of uh, artists, creators, uh, things that they like. So, for example, you can, um, you know, if I were a musician, I might start a Patreon campaign and have you pledge a certain amount of money per song, uh, that sort of thing. And then you can become a virtual patron based on, on the work I do. Uh, in this case, what I'm doing is I'm letting you um, we're asking you to pledge per podcast episode. Uh, it's a really simple. It's really a simple system, actually. You, you can, uh, for example, pledge a dollar per episode, which would be roughly four dollars per month. But you can also cap it at two dollars per month if you want to, or whatever. It's it's pretty it's pretty risk free. Uh, the reason I'm doing this is because I want to give you the opportunity to support me. Uh, if you if you want to, uh, at the moment, you don't get anything extra for doing so, and I don't take anything away if you don't. Um, some artists do that, where being a patron is a prerequisite for for getting uh, certain content and and things like that. But I'm not going to do that uh, at least right now. Maybe in the future I might uh, create bonus content for patrons. I'm not. I'm not sure, but I just thought it'd be a good way to, uh, you know, to let you show support in, uh, in a financial way. Uh, this podcast takes, you know, it takes a, a bit of time and it costs a little bit of money as well. You know, for every hour long podcast that you hear, I probably spend three to four hours between uh, preparation, the actual recording editing, uh, doing the show notes and publishing. And so it's, you know, it's a substantial amount of time in it. It's kind of a labor of love. So it's not, I'm not complaining. I, I really have enjoyed doing this podcast. It's been great. Uh, but you know, it does, it does, uh, take time out of my, out of my schedule and, uh, it does cost money as well. I do pay for the hosting, uh, the, the media hosting costs about $20 a month for this, uh, which, you know, isn't, a huge amount of money, but it's, you know, it's something. So I thought I'd give you a, a chance and ask politely to, uh, to help defray those costs. Uh, it's, this is an experiment. I just want to see how it works out. Uh, if you, if you are interested in that, go to, uh, ericmarshall.net slash Patreon. That's P A T R E O N. It's ericmarshall.net slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Or you can go to the Patreon website and just search for me. You'll find me there under eMarsh. 
Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at emarsh if you uh, want to re- uh, respond to me or uh, have a discussion with me there. I am fairly active on Twitter. Uh, you can find the Twitter of this podcast at wet podcast on Twitter. Uh, go ahead and follow both of those accounts and you, you'll find out from the wet podcast handle when I update, which is every Friday. And uh, Eddie Marsh, I, I talk about more general stuff. Uh, sometimes I just goof around, you know, sometimes I talk about movies that I've seen, things like that. So that's my, uh, that's my Twitter handle. The website is again, ericmarshall.net, E-R-I-K Marshall.net. Net. I really hope you enjoy this interview with Scott Rank. I really enjoyed uh, talking to him. And if you go to his website and his podcast, you'll you'll find uh, me on his podcast. So he had me on his podcast. But uh, it's if you're listening to this on Friday, the Friday it comes out, you'll have to wait a little bit because I think he's uh, releasing that on next Wednesday. So today's the 6th of March, um, whatever that Wednesday is is when he's releasing it. So if you're listening to this in the future, hello, future, uh, you, it's probably already out and you can go listen to it. Okay, again, thanks for listening. And you know, your uh, your current project or the current project that I'm aware of, most aware of right now, is the Scholarpreneur podcast and website. I guess we could start with that, and then I'll probably want to get into your history a little bit. But um, maybe uh, could you talk about what the Scholarpreneur is? Sure. Uh, the website that I started, uh, the Scholarpreneur, the basic idea is that for academics today, there are a lot of opportunities for them to give their knowledge to people who would be interested in learning it outside of the confines of a university. A university is a cutting edge thing for from 200 years ago, where like in one physical location, you have a library, uh, publishing houses, professors, student dormitories, and all of those things, which was great in an era when long distance travel was hard. But now with the powers of the internet and other things where information doesn't have to be transmitted through the walls of a university, there are a lot of possibilities for scholars to um, take what they know and give it to people who'd want to consume it, whether in the form of ebooks on Amazon, um, on online courses, maybe they want to work as freelance. Uh, really, a lot of the things that you're doing, Eric, uh, which is why I uh, how to use a guest on my podcast um, is, is sort of what I'm going for and trying to help empower academics, especially those who don't have tenure, because um, as you've talked about before with the situation of adjuncts, uh, it's just terrible. You're working, you know, 40, 60 hours a week, earning maybe eighteen, twenty thousand $20,000 a year. Adjuncts don't have health insurance despite having a PhD. So, it's a very bad time, but that's not because what they have isn't the knowledge they know isn't valuable. It's just massively undervalued by a university system. And so the goal of the scholarpreneur is to empower academics with information on how they can go out and um, give their information to people who want it. And they can receive um, a compensation that I think they deserve. It's a good mission, if you ask me. Yeah, you know, uh, you know the, the the term scholarpreneur. It's one of those. Um, I don't know if you ever have this feeling, but you, you hear something and you're like, "Why didn't I think of that?" <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of perfect, you know. It's a nice portmanteau of you know entrepreneur and and scholar, and it, it, it's it's nice. Um, and I like that idea of breaking out of the walls of of the university of, of the academic system, uh, to, to share knowledge because that's what a lot of people go into academia for and teaching for is to share knowledge and, and become experts and share that expertise. And as you mentioned earlier, and as people of this podcast, uh, know, or, you know, listeners of this podcast know it's hard for people to do because of the <laughs> adjunctification and, and casualization of the, 
of the workforce. <laughs> so right. it's nice that people have, um, you know, that there are opportunities to to do that. You know, you, you have, I think, uh, as we speak, you have, I think, five episodes up. Um, mm-hmm. And they're all very interesting. You found so far some very interesting people. Um, I'm not including myself in that, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, uh, but you know, you you have uh, somebody who's who's become very popular on YouTube. You know, you have people doing translation work. Um, where where do you uh, where have you been finding people? Uh, through a lot of different research when I was uh, preparing to launch the website, but then also asking around and networking uh, and. Uh, all those things. And the goal that I was trying to do was to find people that are doing what I've tried to do, but way better. And I think are several steps ahead. Um, one example is um, one interviewee was Margaret Hiley. She runs a translation service. Uh, she is a, a native bilingual speaker of both English and German. And when she was in her PhD program, she did uh, uh, freelance translation gigs on the side to earn extra money and was working as a lecturer in England, which I think is an equivalent of an adjunct. I'm not quite sure. Um, does that sound right? Lecturer? You know, I'm not sure. I'm not, I just don't um, know. <laughs> yeah, whatever the, yeah, whatever the English equivalent is. But um, Okay. And then she realized that, well, I enjoy doing translation a lot more. Um, and if I were to do it on my through traditional academic channels, I'd have to be at a publishing house. They would... Um, get to the, you know, get the majority of what I earn. And um, I always come back to this Marxist theory of economics. I'm not a Marxist, but it's the best explanation I have where in academia, you don't control the means of production. You're a worker. Um, So if she thought if I were just doing translation for somebody else, then they get the majority of the profit. However, if I do it on my own, I already have contacts, um, setting up a website, is not that hard and it's not that expensive to pay someone Uh, for myself to set up my scholarpreneur website. All I did was I just made a short five minute video explaining how I wanted it to look. And I hired a guy uh, from Pakistan to do it for $90. So um, I'm very big on uh, geo arbitrage. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, so she just uh, set it up and she said she's making uh, way more than she would have made had she been, um, working uh, just in a traditional academic environment. So um, I don't know. I I think that there's a lot of possibilities for people to um, do things like that and create um, things uh, just by learning some really basic internet stuff. And, um, and also like I found that people who are doing it, they seem to a lot of times be having a lot more fun with it than they would otherwise. Um, one of the first people I talked to was Rebecca Schumann, who is an educational columnist on Slate.com. And a year ago, she wrote an article called uh, Thesis Hatement. Uh, um, I think the subtitle is uh, doing a PhD in literature will make you a miserable person and ruin your life. So she decided I'm not going to be neutral about this. I'm going to be very clear on where I stand. And it went wildly viral. I think um, tens or hundreds of thousands of people gave it Facebook likes and – um, she was an adjunct for a number of years. Now she's become a professional writer, but she said that, I mean, she just has way more fun writing these things than, um, not that academic research can't be enjoyable, but sometimes there is a bit of a depressing aspect that you put a tremendous amount of time and energy into something that, you know, honestly, very few people will ever see. Um, that's what gets me about my dissertation. I'm at the very end of it. Um, I'll de- be defending in May. And I think there is nothing in my life I've worked harder on. But honestly, how many people are going to read this? Um, There's so much background information you would have to know to be interested in the arguments. Um, I mean, unless you're very knowledgeable about secondary literature of the Ottoman Empire in the 18 and 1900s, it's not going to be much interest to you. Um, and I, family members of mine have said, oh, I can't wait to read it when you're done. I said, please don't. I mean, just – I know you mean well by saying that, but I, I release you of that. Like I will never expect you to look at it. So, um, so there's something kind of enjoyable creating something that, you know, has like a slightly wider appeal uh, and will be, um, consumed by more people. So that's a, that's a vibe I've gotten from the different people I've talked to. Yeah, that was, uh, that was one of the things I was going to ask you if you found any, uh, commonality between the people you've talked to so far. And, uh, it sounds like one of them is, is having fun, which, mm-hmm. 
is great, right? Because you don't <laughs> you don't always get that with academic uh, research, as as you as you noted. Uh, are there any other uh, things like so far that you found that uh, people have in common? The people that you're you're calling scholarpreneurs. Well, here's another interesting phenomena that um, I wrote a blog post a couple days ago called um, Harnessing the Superstar Effect in Academia. And um, the superstar effect is something that uh, social economists came up with in the 1980s. And what it means basically is that the person who's the number one in a field will receive all the majority of the spoils of victory, far more than number two even if there's a marginal difference between number one and number two. Uh, statistically, for example, um, Victorian or valedictorians get four to five times uh, more college offers, tuition aid, than the number two person in a high school. Even though on paper, there's probably an infinitesimal difference between the two. Um, the problem with that means in academia is that the way that people try to compete for attention is on a very limited battleground. They're trying to publish articles or a book, go to a conference. Um, maybe they try to make connections with you know, well-known academics or they have an Ivy, Ivy League credential. There's not a lot more than that on, on the way that most academics compete for prestige. So the problem is it's so hard to be the superstar to be number one because your competition is so fierce but here's the interesting thing about the superstar effect. There's an opposite side of that called the superstar corollary, which means that if you're number one in a field, even one that isn't – there isn't heavy um, competition, you still receive all the benefits as somebody who's um, number one where there is heavy competition. So what – where I'm getting with all this is um, – one person – he hasn't been on my podcast. Hopefully will in April. Um, Eric uh, – What's his last name? Jarosinski, I think that's it. He does. He's on Twitter. He runs uh, Nine Quarterly. He has about a hundred thousand followers, um, but he's probably one of the top academics on Twitter. And which you might think, okay, what does that mean? But the fact that he's like number one, he gets the benefits of the superstar effect. So he already has a publishing deal. He has uh, a weekly column that appears in two German newspapers. He, right now, he's on a campus tour to ten different colleges. Um, and the barrier to entry in Twitter is non-existent. Anyone can do it, but in a way like he's getting sort of the same benefits as a superstar, then somebody who's the top scholar in, I don't know, critical theory of, uh, German literature in the 20th century, which would be enormously hard to be the top in or, uh, Greg Sadler, who is uh, a podcast uh, guest too. He has, uh, multiple videos on YouTube. He mostly just takes videos of his classroom lectures. He's a philosophy professor, an adjunct. And uh, he's also doing some other interesting things. Called One is called Half Hour Hegel, where he spends half an hour going through uh, whatever Hegel's uh, magnum opus is. And um, uh, he, yeah, I mean, he has over a million downloads, um, I think 18,000 subscribers. He might very well be the top academic on YouTube. Maybe there's someone else I don't know. But then he also gets the superstar effect, even though... Theoretically, anyone could do that, but he just found a niche and he dominated it. And now he said that he's getting um, lots of public speaking opportunities through that. He's getting uh, offers, um, you know, to be a visiting professor at different places. So um, that's the thing I've seen too among people that they use uh, this superstar effect, where they think, okay, where's an area where the competition is much less fierce? And I can go dominate that area and get all the benefits because um, just as an academic, unless really you went to Harvard uh, and you're already cranking out articles like crazy at a young age and you know, you're know you on the path to a book deal, winning in the domain that everyone else competes in is almost impossible. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, and you know, these people you're talking about, they uh, I don't know if they set out to dominate that niche in the beginning if that was like their strategy in the be you know in the beginning i'm going to right. dominate this niche but you know it sounds like they're just were doing stuff <laughs> right which is yeah I right it's like oh i'm gonna put my stuff on youtube maybe people will be interested next thing you know right um right I, I, i'll post a link to that article because I, I just read that this morning uh your article on your site about uh, the nine the nine quarterly it's that's nine like the german word for no yeah not nine right right <laughs> um i just read that it's a great article i'll, I'll put a um 
link to it on the show notes at ericmarshall.net slash what. Uh, so people can uh, take a look at that because I think that's, that's very interesting because I've always been fascinated by the idea of the public intellectual. Right, and right. That seems to be a space that is occupied by a few people for a while it was, you know, I think that, you know, maybe I'm romanticizing the fifties and sixties, but it seems like there is more this idea of the public intellectual people could write and, you know, kind of be well, be widely read, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's kind of coming back a little bit in a way where you have scholars and sometimes by necessity, right. People who are trying to get out of the classroom and, and, and seek a wider audience. And, you know, who would think that a half-hour Hegel video would have any traction whatsoever? But, you know, like you said, if you're right, right. in that niche, there are people who are interested in that stuff, you know. So that's 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 really interesting to me. Interesting. Yeah, I, no, I really like that idea, what you said there, of the public intellectual. That um, something I think, too, of leveraging these different technologies that make it very easy to get your content out there. Whether you're doing an ebook on Amazon, whether you're making an online course on Udemy, or if you want to do a podcast, if you want to do YouTube videos, Twitter, whatever channel that's out there, uh, it creates an opportunity to reach a much wider audience. And it's sort of the 21st century digital version of this public academic. And Europe still has, I think, a, a stronger tradition of this where I think more academics have regular features in newspaper columns and um, – America, I mean, I don't know. I guess there's Noam Chomsky, Paul Krugman. Um, I can't really think of that many other academics that are, you know, regularly putting out things that are digestible for the um, intelligent consumer um, who's not a specialist. But, yeah. um, but that's really, a, I think there are ways for academics if they think, okay, you know, I, I do want to be out there and, um, you know, talk to people because, I mean, all you, if you watch any type of news or any type of, um, uh, any form of talk radio or cable news. I mean, the, the talking heads experts, um, I'm sure any academic, if they heard people arguing in their field thinking you are an absolute idiot, like you are just mangling this, you're getting it all the way wrong, but you have the national platform because you can speak in sound bites and, you know, look at a camera. And, um, so, you know, I, I would like to see if academics could be more out in that arena. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I think, it would be nice if maybe there's an idea of this this way for intellectuals to use some of these technologies and be more in a public realm because now it's a lot easier. I mean, you don't have to go into a TV studio like people in the 60s would or um, write a column for the uh, daily, uh, a metropolitan daily, but use you know whatever tool you do have at your disposal. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think podcasting is a great example um and i love podcasting i'm I'm so glad i discovered it because it's so it's fun (laughs) you know yeah and it's 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 relatively easy uh you know (laughs) it's got its challenges i've I've learned but um and you can reach different types of audiences for sure um so you know the marshall McLuhan comes to mind as one of those public intellectuals from the past you know and, and you get people who, like you said, you see them on TV once in a while, but you don't you don't see it as often. I think it's more in these kind of YouTube and and podcasting and stuff. So I think I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, how did you uh, How did you get started on the scholarpreneur uh, path? Uh, yeah, that's a. It, it's been a really interesting journey. Uh, it starts a few years ago, where uh, my PhD as a is in a Central European University in Hungary, which. Um, I ended up there kind of through a quirk. It happens to have a good Ottoman studies program. And um, so I started studying there. We were expecting our first child uh, a year or a year and a half into the program. So my wife and I decided that um, she would stay home with uh, our daughter when she was young. And then I would um, do what I could to earn enough money to fill out our budget. So I did what any uh, expat does uh, who's an American and found work teaching English. But Mm -hmm. I quickly reached a ceiling of what I could do. I only had so many hours in the day where I could do my studies but then also teach on top of it. Uh, And then I thought, well, is there a way I can better utilize my time? Because at that point I was going around Budapest to, you know, different businesses giving corporate English lessons. So I heard about teaching English online. 
And uh, I switched over to that. Uh, So I would teach Japanese businessmen English through Skype. And I noticed that my earnings tripled through that, not because I was earning three times as much money, but because since my commute was cut out, I was able to do so much more, so much more efficiently. Then I started to think of, well, are there other ways that, um, I don't know, I'm studying Ottoman history, more broadly Middle Eastern history. Is there any way that I could create some type of information product that somebody would want to buy? And I had no background in business whatsoever. Um, I uh, had worked as a journalist in the past and taught English on the side during uh, my graduate program. But uh, so the first book I read was uh, called The Four Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss, which uh, if you have no business background whatsoever, I do recommend that one. It's uh, quite entertainingly written and uh, very digestible. Uh, and it not only explains how to set something up, but the idea behind it. And for our work week, uh, he admits it's a gimmicky title. It's not that you only work four hours a week, but you um, maximize your efficiency. The idea being that you could try to do 10 times as much. So <clears throat> anyway, I um, decided I would embark on a project and um, think, okay, is there some way I can take my knowledge and you know give it to the masses? So I – talked with two friends, one who is now a PhD in microbiology and another who has two masters, one in engineering and the other in philosophy. And we thought, could we do some type of online program and you know some type of educational thing where we could take ideas, strip it down to its bare essentials and uh, have people pay for it? So we came up with an idea called five-minute courses and the mantra was repeating 555 over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess it sort of uh, echoes the uh, failed presidential campaign of Herman Cain several years ago, the 999 plan. Um, <laughs> That's good. So uh, if nothing else, you have to give Herman Cain credit that I have no idea what those nines mean. And <laughs> yeah, me all, either, I remember is, all I remember is economists saying that it didn't work. Um, <laughs> but the point is, is that you remember the, the numbers. So we thought yeah. five, 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 whatever. Um, the idea being, okay, and here are five-minute modules that you get five – um, what was it? Uh, for five weeks, there's five lessons a week. So it totals 25 for $5. And, uh, I made one on just a very brief crash course history of the middle East. So if you're seeing the Israeli Palestinian conflict play out and you have no idea, why are these people fighting each other? Okay. Obviously there's a ancient historical animosity, but what does this all mean? Where does this come from? So, it starts um, from ancient Near Eastern civilization, goes through the rise of Islam, uh, then like you know the Abbasid Caliphate, the Golden Age of Islam, the Ottoman Empire, things like that, right up to the 20th century, the creation of Israel, the Iranian Revolution, uh, all the way up to the Arab Spring. We put it up. It made absolutely no money uh, because we just didn't know what we were doing. Um, we tried to sell the course in email format, which didn't make sense to anybody for good reason because nobody does that. Right. Uh, so then we thought, okay, let's just scrap it. And I didn't really know what to do at that point going forward. Um, I came across the idea of ebooks somewhere, and I had heard that uh, this was in late 2012 that some people were starting to make money and there were actually legitimate authors who were doing self-publishing because self-publishing I thought of was something that crazy people did or that something that's otherwise unpublishable. You have to resort to self-publishing if you can't get it done otherwise. But um, people were saying that Amazon was, um, it's a legitimate sales channel. If you edit your book correctly, no one will know the difference. And Amazon lets you keep 70% of the revenue of a book compared to, um, after wholesaling costs like five or 10% if you're going through a traditional publisher. Uh, so I thought, okay, I'll just take this uh, information I created for this Middle Eastern course and package it into an ebook. And I had to read some tutorials online on how to format it. I uh, found a website called fiverr.com, F I V E R R. Uh, and I paid someone $5 to design my book cover and they actually did a good job. And so I put it up there, and to my surprise, it started to sell. It was called uh, From Muhammad to Burj Khalifa, a crash course in 2,000 years of Middle Eastern history. 
And so I thought, okay, this is, um, this is the first venture I've done that's actually worked. And so then I figured, all right, I should do um, some other books. Uh, so the way that I came up with history book ideas was rather than go after my own uh, special niche of Ottoman history or Middle Eastern history, I thought, okay, I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not an expert in all of history, but I know more about just about any part of history than your average person does. And I can pretty quickly assimilate information and know how to categorize it better than another person. Um, I think like any academic, I mean, they're a specialist in a wider field, but they can also kind of um, accumulate their knowledge much faster anywhere within that wider field better than another person. So my next idea, I, I actually did some surveying with people asking, okay, here's 30 history book titles I would be willing to write. Vote on your top 10. Because I thought I want to meet in the middle ground between what I would want to do and what would people buy. And yeah. um, the results were interesting. One that pulled the highest was uh, called History's Most Insane Rulers, which actually over time has been one of my best-selling books, uh, where I just look at people who were mentally in, either mentally insane or megalomaniacs wow. in the Middle Ages. <laughs> it's like in the Middle Ages due to – trying to uh, transfer property to to your descendants and all the messiness of medieval politics, you were actually incentivized to put your heir on the throne, even if they were crazy. I think it was like Charles the sixth or Charles the second who thought he was made of glass. And then you, <laughs> um, and then in the modern era, you have megalomaniacs like Kim Jong-il or, uh, Turkmenbashi, the former leader of, um, Turkmenistan. Um, yeah, so I did that, um, and they were pretty short. Um, the books were – my early ones were only about twenty or 30,000 words um, because I had read places that you can – ebooks can be shorter if they're priced cheaper, and mine are all priced at two ninety nine. I got a few complaints that they were too short, so I increased them. Now my books are between fifty to 70,000 words, which um, would be, I don't know, like between 150 to 200 pages. Um, yeah, so, and now I, and I also take advantage of like copy editors and line readers and other things to, uh, improve editing because my first book or two, I didn't do as much editing as I should have. So there were some typos, which also, um, got some complaints. So I, you know, learned from my mistakes and moved on. And so the ebook thing was really what got it going. And then I, um, really just thought I'm going to experiment with as much stuff as I can and just see what sticks because, um, the ebook thing really it was a great thing that came at a great time where it provided enough revenue. I didn't have to teach English anymore. I could uh, focus a lot more time on my studies and get through my dissertation a lot faster. It took away a lot of uh, the stress that I had in my life. And, um, and now even like at the end of my PhD program, I think I don't, I don't feel like I have as much anxiety going forward as, um, might be common at this stage uh, yeah. when it's very difficult to get a job. And mm -hmm. um, so I'm continually trying to grow this and try new things. Uh, I put up a, a course on Udemy or Udemy, however it's pronounced uh, about the Middle East. Uh, what else? Uh, I how also is, work. With how a, is that doing? The, you, I, I don't know how to pronounce it either. It's spelled U D E M Y yeah. for people who don't know it, but right. um, it's a place for online courses. How is how is that going? Because I'm, I'm I'm about to put something on Udemy, um, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. But uh, I'm curious, uh, just for for personal reasons, I guess. Like how how is that doing? How, what's your been, what's been your experience over there? Mine, it's done okay, but not great. Mm -hmm. um, I would say like the. It sells for um, $59, but I have a lot of coupons that I give out. And, right. Um, I'll get – it'll bring in maybe like 100 to $150 of earnings in a month, which is okay. But um, I was sort of pulled in by stories of these superstars who are making literally six figures on Udemy. Oh, um, but I think the people who are really doing well are – doing stuff like intro to um, Java programming or how to make an iPhone yeah. app. Right. And those co courses, they'll charge three or four hundred dollars because it's a tradition. It's an actual work skill, whereas mine is more of, I guess, kind of like a humanities curiosity. And yeah. you'll see other history courses on there. Um, and I have seen some where um, they're 
people are doing phenomenally well. There's one on, I think, uh, history of uh, art renaissance uh, painting or um, uh, renaissance art. And uh, I think uh, the person who is running that course has had several thousand people purchase it. So he must be making five or five figures, not six figures, but um, yeah. So I would say, give it a try. And um, another thing that's uh, worked out is I found a voice actor and he has worked to do, uh, he's worked with me to make my eBooks into audio books, which we do a royalty split Mm -hmm. on a site called uh, ACX, which Mm -hmm. is um, a wing of Amazon where, it makes it very easy to find a narrator. Um, and I was really glad to work that out because theoretically I could do it myself, but I think, uh, I wouldn't want to listen to myself talk that long. And <laughs> like the yeah. beauty of podcasting is you don't have to speak perfectly, right. but in audiobooks you can't flub stuff up and keep going. So, yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, so I, that's, I've heard, I've heard horror stories about people uh, narrating their own books and just how long it takes and everything. Right. Yeah. A couple takeaways, real quick, is one thing. I'm glad you said at the very beginning is that you don't you didn't have any um, history in business, like you didn't have any like prior knowledge of business, right? You because I always get the sense with entrepreneurs or just even that word, it's just like some innate thing that people have and they've done all their lives, right? Mm-hmm. But you were more like, okay, I've got a kid coming, I've got this dissertation to write, I got a kind of pull my weight financially yeah. and try to and try to kind of um, almost future-proof your career knowing what's coming up in terms of the job market, which is very wise, exactly. right? So you're like, what am I going to do? So you go read 4-Hour Workweek, which is, a, you know, um, which I've read. And you know, I think the one of the main takeaways of that book is outsource, you know, outsource everything uh-huh. you can, right, which you can do now. And it sounds like that's what you've done with – so the ACX thing um, – for for the narration is is very good because you get um you do a royalty split like you said so there's no money up front right um, right I, I talked to Simon Whistler on this podcast a while ago and if anyone's interested in audiobooks go back to that episode because we talk a yeah lot he, about he is the guy to do it he is the guy he's the guy to to go to and he's got a great book on um on audiobooks and and how to do them and when to do them and and whether you should do them or not and and stuff like that it's really it's really great but um. Do you still for just a real quick question, do you still get your covers made on Fiverr? Yeah, I still do it. Um Do you really? And, well, here's the thing though, like there oh man, there are entire websites devoted to terrible ebook covers. Yeah. Um go check it. The funniest ones are romance where they'll uh-huh. do a poor like Photoshop of some totally ripped dude with a shirt off with um you know and a the buxomy woman. The funniest one I saw was they were in um, a very R-rated embrace, but right in front of the Washington Monument. And I thought, <laughs> what sort of like horror-stricken field trips of eighth graders are looking at them as they're you know right in, about ready to do it in front of the reflecting pool? So, um, okay, so I'll have to say uh, Fiverr can be terrible, but the way yeah. I've made it work is um, usually with history books, I'll find some type of iconic image or painting that's in the public domain. Uh, okay. So one I had was called History's Greatest oh, Generals, okay. and I found that famous picture of Napoleon on the horse where yeah. it's you know rearing up, and I told them, okay, use this picture. I'll find a book on Amazon that I like. I like the font. I like the image, whatever, and I'll say, make it look like this. Use the same font. Uh, Try to leave as little to chance as possible because if you go in and you don't know what you want, for $5 um, – for someone probably in Pakistan or India, they're very good at um, following precise directions and putting together what you want. But because it's not a lot of money, I don't think they're going to take the time to you know, heavily contemplate what the theme of your book is. Right. And they'll just kind of like pretty quickly throw something up. So, yeah. And if I were in that position, I would do the exact same thing. Oh, so. Yeah. Um, because I mean, it's sort of a volume game, but if you mm-hmm. give them really precise directions, um, and, and that's what happened too, with my website design for uh, history in five minutes, I just said, okay, here's a color palette that, um, I like, and I just made a video of me going to some different websites saying, okay, I like this part here. Make sure to include this. Okay. Use this font and all that. And, uh, yeah, they put it up and they only had to really go back and change one or two things and i was perfectly happy with it by the time it was done 
That's great. For those who don't know, Fiverr is a place where you can get just about anything done for for the base price of five dollars. Um, that's uh, the logo for this um, podcast. I got done Fiverr. I just yeah, me too. Uh, oh, did you? Yeah, I found a random yeah. person and I said, uh, "Here, make something." They did, and I tweaked it a little bit in Photoshop, and it's you know, it's okay. <laughs> I'm going to change it yeah. soon, I think, but it was fine for five bucks, you know. <laughs> yeah, or even like so, if I if I have like a little problem on my website. There's a guy I'll just pay $5 to fix it. If there is anything graphic design related, I always go there because yeah. I think, all right, I could, I don't really know Photoshop. I mean, I could mess around with it in two hours and it would still look terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I could just give a guy $5 and he wins. Um, based on where he lives in the world, $5 could go quite far. Yeah. Um, I don't have to spend all this time and he would do a better job than I would. So, right. yeah, win win. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I, I'm with you on that for sure. On your podcast, you have a nice little intro thing um, and some music. Did you do, use Fiverr for that as well? Yeah. Um, I found a guy who does the voiceover thing of, mm-hmm. and now your host, Scott Rank, and whatever. Right. And so I uh, paid for him to do the intro and the outro. Uh, that was two different gigs, but whatever, $10. So yeah, yeah it was a guy that will just do a I think 30 seconds of intro or outro uh, for that much. There's a, there's a lot of people there. And yeah, there are. There's, um, there's different styles. There's the um, someone who can do more of like a NPR type of voice. There's someone who can do the like, no, you're 98.5, four-hour rock block coming up, whatever voice. Uh, it, right. It's just incredible, the stuff. I mean, you can – on Fiverr, you can find someone who will write a song for you and record it. Um, yeah. It, yeah, it's so, wild. Yeah, it's I, so much stuff on there. You can spend a lot of time just looking on Fiverr, just browsing oh, yeah. weird stuff. You know, there's a great site called. Uh, it's by Derek Murphy. The, uh, he's a um, cover designer. It's called DoesMyCoverSuck.com, and uh, you can go and vote on people. You know, you can people can upload their covers and count on whether whether it sucks. It says it rocks or it sucks, and you have a zero to ten scale. Um, I'll put a note in the show notes to that. Okay, too. you're talking about bad. You're talking about bad covers earlier. So does yeah. my covers suck? Dot com. Um, that's that's kind of fun uh, because I'm like you with graphic design. I I don't. I mean, uh, much better off having someone else do that. But um, I haven't heard of anybody having a lot of success with covers on Fiverr. So that's that's really interesting to know. It's it's good. <laughs> it's really good to know. I mean, I, I will say though, it can be hit or miss. I've had yeah. bad covers done, but I figure, well, whatever. I mean, and yeah, of course, you have to find someone who has experience and can do it well. Um, there are more high end options like Ninety Nine Designs. Uh, that's where. You're almost you're no you are guaranteed to get a good thing and you don't have to pay if you don't like it. Right. Um, so if you're very concerned, thinking this has to be absolutely top notch, then that's another way to go too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There are a lot of resources to to do these things. And the thing about self publishing that you brought up earlier is, you know, you can. You said you had some typos in your first couple. Well, it's it, if as long as you have the original, which of course you did, you can just fix it and re-upload it. And those typos are gone, you know, within right. twenty four hours or whatever, and which is really nice. Which is something that obviously you can't do with, with traditional publishing, and it really um, is nice for someone like you who is just you're just going to try it, see if it works, and fix it as you go. <laughs> you know, if it doesn't work, you'll figure out a way to make it work or fix what didn't work, and it's it it's um, fairly low risk, I think. That, yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- that's been my operating philosophy for a lot of these things is. Try as much as you possibly can and see what sticks. And also, if you try things um, and you build up any kind of following, get in touch with them and ask them as much as you can about what they like, what they would prefer. Um, And this is something that I would say is one of the biggest differences in the academic world versus the business world, where academic world – I mean, you're not building a curriculum based on um, what students want, nor should you, because that's kind of the purpose of the academic world, that you're giving information to people that might not know any better. And yeah, you do want to listen to evaluations, so there is an element of paying attention to your audience. Um, Whereas in the business world, there's a much stronger dialectic between what you create and what people want and meeting in the middle ground and finding out what they would be interested in doing um, or what they – what content they would be interested in consuming. So 
Um, right. Yeah, I always uh, try to be mindful of that and ask people when I did polling on uh, what books would you be the most interested in reading, the that initial data of how people responded and then the actual number of books I sold when I wrote them corresponded very closely to wow. that original poll. Um, and when my friends and I originally did that five-minute courses thing that failed, we never asked anybody if we – if they would pay for emails. I mean, if we would have just taken five or 10 minutes doing that, we could have saved ourselves just a boatload of time. Um, But of course we thought, well, it makes sense in our head. So of course it's a good idea, which is (laughs) like, that's how, that's how terrible ideas and terrible products begin where somewhere, somebody in their head, it somehow makes sense and it's a good idea. But then when reality comes along, it, fails. Um, and this is kind of a mindset thing too. It's a little different, uh, from academia is, uh, in business world, they talk about the minimum viable product where, um, create something that in its, it's functional, but you don't add anything else to it. Make sure it works, test it as fast as you can get feedback as fast as you can, and then use that feedback to improve it. And you already create the feedback loop of improvement that can exist if you, Instead, like spend all this time toiling away to make something perfect when you don't even know if it'll work or not. So, um, so I'm not advocating like just throw stuff up that is sloppy and not good. And I mean, I have really worked to build up a much better editing infrastructure in my books and have one person doing, um, the line editing and then another person doing, uh, then the proofreading and all this stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean, of course, like we want to make stuff as good as we can, but at the same time, um, there's also an element where it benefits to produce as much as possible where, um, for eBooks, uh, the way you benefit from the model is writing more, not less for podcasting. You benefit by putting, I mean, out or putting out episodes on a regular basis. Like, yeah, you could tinker with it and spend forever editing it and add music and all this stuff, but you think, well, isn't it better just to get it out more on a regular basis? And sometimes the answer is yes. Yes, I agree with that completely. Um, sometimes I'll be editing, and I want, I, I'm a little bit of a perfectionist, but I know the deadline for this is Friday morning, <laughs> usually. Yeah. So okay, it's time to it's time to release it, and you know it's always good enough. It's always you know usually it's much much better than good enough actually. But sometimes you're like, okay, well I have to let go of it now, you know, because I could mm-hmm. spend a week you know like you said adding music and doing all this other stuff but yeah that's that's a um that's a really good point you know instead of like the scholarly article that you slave over and then you go through the peer review process right you know years go by (laughs) and all that stuff right that's not not viable in the in the space that you're talking about where did you uh where did you do the polls oh okay well um there's a t- free tool I use called SurveyMonkey where you can create free polls and oh, um, yeah. I make it as simple as possible. <clears throat> Sorry. I uh, will just have like a list of 20 books and say vote for 10 of these. Um, what I do now is I have an email list and I'll contact that list and ask them. But okay. if you don't have a list, uh, you could just uh, put something up on Facebook and ask uh, friends or other people to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually did that when I was thinking of the name for my website, Scholarpreneur. Uh, I had a bunch of other ideas, and um, so I put a bunch down there, and Scholarpreneur was the winner. Uh, another thing I did recently with polling, uh, this was another experiment I did um, I have a friend who is an illustrator, and I said to him, hey, uh, would you be interested in doing a joint project with me? I um, had thought in the past about doing a children's book, but those are graphic heavy, and um, I really don't have enough money to shell out for an illustrator because that would cost several hundred, if not $1,000 to get one to do a good job. And he said, yeah, let's try it out. So. I um, did a bunch of research on Amazon to see what are categories that people tend to buy books. Then within those categories, I came up with 20 or 30 ideas that I thought were you know, funny ideas. The one that was my personal favorite but pulled terribly was called If I Had a Proboscis. Um, <laughs> so it's like 
Yeah, I would, I would read that. That's hilarious. <laughs> it's like, all right, I can drink my brother's milk from across the table and like suck out, or I can swim underwater and use my proboscis like a snorkel. But oh, you no one voted. Up. Oh my gosh, that's great. <laughs> that was a. Pro- but then like everyone said, well, what's a proboscis? Like, uh, no, it's what a butterfly uses. So, um, but the one that was the actual winner, and I didn't expect it to win, but it pulled far and away. It was called the hippo who did gymnastics. Okay, and I thought. Okay, I can see why people would. So obviously it's like a funny story of where they expect it to be bad because a hippo is a large, ungraceful animal, but it ends up being good. That's really as deep as it gets, but it's just a simple early reader that's about 500 words. And um, yeah, so we launched it a week ago, and because there aren't many uh, words with it, we're going to also put out a bunch of translations on Amazon too Uh in – uh, oddly enough, hippo who does gymnastics is only one word in German. So um, no way. So, yeah. huh. so that's a very interesting language. Those Germans, um, they love just smushing words together to make yeah. new words. You know, it's the craziest thing. <laughs> that's great. so like the like the children's book. Will it work? I don't know. I mean, I did as much upfront research as I could. You know, we worked to. I, I did as much marketing to make it successful. I got reviews on Amazon and this stuff, but. If it doesn't work, well, all I've really lost is time and I learned something from it. If it does work, great. You know, I'll you know, just try and keep going. And, and then I've you had a write, lot of then you can write the proboscis one. Yeah. <laughs> that'll that'll be the work of passion, exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I mean it's um even the word failure, I mean it's it, it shouldn't be considered a negative thing because um lots of people in the space who have tried lots of things, who've put tons of things out there. Um, many of their ideas don't work, but they, if you put it in enough volume, it will. Um, on When I had you on the podcast, we talked about Isaac Asimov and how he wrote 500 books. Um, there's probably m- many, there's probably like 400 that are almost, have practically been lost to obscurity or they're just yeah, fallen into complete obscurity. Yeah. Um, and then there's a upper realm of stuff that is popular. And then there's the very top of his, um, all of his writings, like the foundation series, but just because he did so much, I mean, some of them had to work out. Yeah, right, right. Exactly. Um, that's, that's a good point. Philip K. Dick is another good example of that actually, you know, who wrote so much and, and a lot of it was good and, you know, a lot of it, people don't read as much and, and yeah, I think that's a, that's a very good point. Do you find um, that sometimes when you talk to people about you know this whole scholarpreneur idea, do you feel like there's sometimes resistance um, on the part of of scholars, graduate students to to the mindset of the entrepreneur? I have faced uh, some strong resistance from people, um, not people that I do know, but more in the online sphere that some people were very hostile to the idea and um i didn't really worry about it because i figure well yeah. i some there's negativity anywhere but where where some of the anger came from i think uh it was amongst some adjuncts who didn't like what i was saying that um okay adjuncting is a precarious situation mm-hmm. because of that and because due to the very sad state of the employment situation in America, it is statistically unlikely you will get tenure. So you should um, prepare for this and develop other ways mm-hmm. to kind of to build more security into your life. Because um, universities will screw, up, screw adjuncts as hard as they possibly can. So right. um, to just do what you can to prepare. And the people didn't like it. I think what they didn't like was the idea – Somehow it interpreted as, well, no, like adjuncts need to stand and fight and cl- and get what is theirs. Maybe mm-hmm. it means um, fight for unionization. Maybe it means you know fight for working conditions. And and I am completely in favor of adjuncts uniting together to demand better conditions for themselves because if they don't do it for themselves, no one else will. So right. um, so I totally support any effort where they try to better their situation at a university. Um, but, but I also think, well, there's a difference between what should be and what is. And, um, I, I don't know when the situation will improve or if it will improve. And then there's bigger challenges. Like some States are cutting hundreds of millions of dollars to higher education. So 
if everyone is losing money, then how can adjuncts get more? Um, so I would like it to be better, of course, but if it doesn't, then I don't want people to have to um, be in this difficult situation. Um, so, and then of course there's an idea that like any type of entrepreneur can be a smarmy thing of some guy at Sears trying to hustle you to buy a toaster or the whole like slick back, you know, <laughs> right. um, the, that used car dealer with a gold watch. And mm-hmm. like the idea for an entrepreneur, I approach it not as like a shady salesman, but the classical idea that the technical, meaning of entrepreneur is um, one who shifts assets from unproductive areas to productive areas. And I think a lot of academic knowledge is an unproductive area because universities treat most scholars so terribly that they don't give them the opportunity and the outlets to give their knowledge to people who want to receive it. So I think there are many other channels, many of which are free, like YouTube or Twitter or podcasting or whatever, where they can take the product their unproductive assets, their knowledge sitting in a university where they are not valued and respected the way they should be and shift it to a productive area where they can find people that would want to listen to it and they would want to engage with it. So that's kind of the big idea behind it that um, I think what scholars do know is valuable. If they know how to communicate it to people, it is important. And um, I think they need that appreciation. And because I think universities are doing such a terrible job of that, that if scholars can find ways to do it on their own, I think they might be surprised that people are more interested in what they have to say than they would have ever thought. Yeah, that's the amazing thing. Uh, I could see why you'd have some resistance because, um, uh, I mean, I was one of those people, I think, for a long time who I thought the word entrepreneur did mean sleazy or like you're yeah. trying to hustle someone, you know? And, um, you know, I had this kind of purist attitude of I'm going to work for a university. I'm going to get tenure and all that stuff. Right. And what you're talking about with the, uh, with adjuncts saying you should organize and everything, it, I don't think it's an either or situation, you know, right, it's, right. It's, it's so tricky because, you know, I mean, adjuncts are almost the definition of exploited labor, Right. And, you know, one way to take that labor into your own hands is to organize, to unionize, you know, um, and I'm all for that. And I've been very involved in uh, several uh, adjunct unions, a couple of adjunct unions and graduate student unions here in Michigan. Uh, I think it's a good idea, but just on a personal level, just a survival level, you have you have to find a way to do something else. And what you're what you're kind of suggesting, I think, is another way to take your labor into your own hands. You know, because mm-hmm. you're taking the reason you went into graduate school, research and or teaching, depending on the person, and saying, you know, you can find an audience, you can find a way to do those things without relying on this largely broken system um, mm-hmm. of, the, of the university system, especially in the United States, um, and probably also elsewhere as well. Is that is that a good way to kind of rephrase what you no, said? In a way? No, thank you. That that's actually that's better stated uh, than what I was trying to go for. Um, yeah, it's not either or. I mean, can adjuncts through unionization, through other means, whatever? Yes, I mean, work. Try to you know increase your station, um, get the the salary and the respect from your university that you deserve. Go for it. But um, for many people who, if adjuncting isn't enough to support themselves. Um, some people have to go to find some other job. And if it's some part-time work, like a Sally, a Starbucks barista or whatever, I figure, Mm -hmm. well, if you have to do that anyway, why not do it in a field that you already love and care about and then try to, um, find a way through different online channels to make it work. And, and yeah. And the other thing with the, um, uh, like the idea of sleazy selling people, kind of like what you're doing at the podcast. Um, something that I always hope that I do is um, I always want to give a lot of free content to people. I, I don't even yeah. sell anything right now. I mean, I have ebooks, but it's not part of my whole scholarpreneur thing. And, um, you know, maybe in the future I might have a course or something. So if people want that, then they can check it out. But, um, but if people just want to like, listen to podcasts or whatever and just engage on that level, then that's fine. And I hope they walk away having benefit from, from that. So, um, uh, yeah. And like what you're doing, uh, with your podcast where it, um, it does help people and it, you know, it gives, they walk away having benefited from, from encountering it. 
I hope so. Thanks for thanks for saying yeah. that. I appreciate that. Yeah, I think I think you're right. We're you know we're trying to share knowledge. You know, for me, it's an excuse to talk to interesting people, um, and uh, you know, hopefully, help people like you said in the um, at the same time. Uh, it's not completely unconnected or disconnected from other things I'm doing, and you know, I'm trying to figure that out as well. So yeah, I do I appreciate that. I think it, it makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I know when I was on your podcast, we talked about um, things that adjuncts can do or not just adjuncts but uh scholars people who are you know um either in a graduate program or or you know kind of lingering on the job market right and you know we came up with some ideas of like you have the expertise it's a matter of figuring out how to how to offer it i guess you could say and mm-hmm. um you know i think with what you're doing i think it's very very useful and very it's a very good way to uh to think about that transition that a lot of people are making you know and, and hopefully you you know you become the superstar of scholarpreneurs <laughs> right <laughs> you know going we'll back see, to that yeah. you know yeah going back to that uh to the article you have on uh, on there so no that's great uh where can people find the scholarpreneur yeah, go to uh, com and uh, podcasts and blog posts and everything else are there. Great, great. And then do you have a Twitter presence or social media or anything that you want to? Yeah, it's a, it's a Twitter. It's the at scholar underscore preneur. Unfortunately, okay. scholar preneur was taken, so uh-huh. I had to, uh, you know, get creative. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so I'm also on Twitter and uh, Facebook as well if you just look for the scholar preneur. Okay, the scholarpreneur on Facebook and scholar underscorepreneur. Um, yes. I don't, I'm not sure that I follow you. I'm going to as soon as we're done with this. <laughs> so, okay, on, on Twitter, but I do go to your site a lot because I because in addition to the podcast, you have interesting articles as well on the on the blog, which uh, I think anybody should should be interested in. So great. Well, hey, thanks for coming on the web podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Thank you.